Welcome to the St. Andrews Community Live Interactive Podcast. Thank you for tuning in with us today. And now for your hosts, for your spiritual hour of power, Pastors D.A. Bennett and Josh Coates. So I grew up, I guess not necessarily grew up, I uh, started going to a small Methodist church in North Oklahoma City when I was about 10 years old. And uh, as a 10-year-old, and I mean, if I'm being honest, even as a 43-year-old, when you're sitting in church, your mind isn't always thinking about the things that it probably should be, right? Um, I remember sitting, we would, the youth would sit on the front row over here, kind of like where our youth sit in the 1050 service. And uh, I remember instead of thinking about uh, the prayer and how meaningful and powerful it is or um, oh man, the powerful sermon, and or thinking on scripture. Um, I remember uh, thinking on things like um, we had an organist who would fall asleep during church um, at the organ, and so we would we would watch to see at what point he was going to fall asleep because his head would just kind of be doing that thing at the organ in the middle of the sermon. So instead of paying attention to the sermon, I was looking to see at what point in the sermon the organist was going to fall asleep. Or I also remember we had this giant um, white tile wall that was behind the stage. So just imagine, instead of a screen and a cross, it was just a giant white tile wall. And uh, there spread kind of throughout the wall were some like color tiles. And I remember sitting and counting how many of the tiles were not white. But one of the things I also remember just kind of fascinating on and just focusing on is like this church, the church that I went to as a teenager and a 10-year-old and up, had this giant Bible on display at the altar. And I remember sitting there on the front row and not listening to the sermon. And it was a Sunday where I wasn't paying attention to the sleeping organist or counting tiles on the wall. And I would just sit there going, why do we have a giant Bible up there? I've never seen anyone ever read from it. And I would just be thinking, because I've, I've always kind of been a practical person, and I just thought, that's not very practical. Like, I, I couldn't just put that in my backpack or in my pocket. Um, no one ever reads from it. What? Why? And as I've grown, as I've gotten older, I've grown to appreciate what the giant Bible at the altar symbolizes. I've grown to appreciate and understand, not only as my love of Scripture has grown, my appreciation of what this symbolizes has grown as well. The Bible should be highly valued and respected. It should be. It should have authority in our lives. And the giant Bible at the altar kind of represents and symbolizes that, but it also is a constant reminder to us that we should be people of the Word. And in thinking about creating our future, and as I've talked with D.A. over the last several weeks, and he was sharing, and, and he's been preaching on uh, dreams, and then the need for a task in order to make those dreams come true and not be a nightmare, um, the one thing that continued to come along in my head that I've just kind of sat on is that people of the Word. St. Andrews, for 29 years, has been a people of the Word. And as I think about creating our future and moving forward, that is a phrase that just continues to come back and back and back, is that we need to continue to be a people of the Word, a people of the Word who read the Word, who study the Word, who teach the Word, who preach the Word, who are obedient 
to the Word. That's who we've been and it's who we're called to continue to be. I love Paul's words in 2 Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, as he's investing and pouring into Timothy, as he is um, mentoring Timothy towards the end of his second letter. I love what he has to say. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, through as he's encouraging Timothy to continue to preach the Word. He says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming. And I would argue a time has come. A time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. These are powerful words from Paul that I don't think have ever been more relevant than they are today in 2022 in our culture and context. Many have been deceived and walked away from their faith, chasing after what their itching ears wanted to hear. Many have taken God's word and twisted it and manipulated it and taken it out of context to teach and support horrifying things. There were Christian ministers holding their Bibles who were in support of slavery. They took and twisted things out of context if we're going to be a people of the Word, we need to have a broad understanding of it. Not just the who's and the what's and the when's and the how's. All of those things are important. But I think the most important thing is understanding the why. Why should the Bible have authority in our lives? Why should we be obedient to it? Why is it relevant to us today? The Bible is a collection of books and letters that are full of poetry, narration, history, law, and prophecy. There are 66 books in the Bible written by 40 different people in three different languages and over a span of 1,600 years. And there are many ways that people approach Scripture, many ways that people think about Scripture and think about the Bible. Some argue that it's a loose collection of stories with no overriding purpose. Some argue that it's a self-help book we can turn to for answers to life's toughest questions. I remember doing that as a teenager. I had a big decision I needed to make, and so I would just kind of open the Bible and boom, and all right, well, that's what I need to do. It didn't really work very well, but that's how sometimes we think of and approach Scripture. Some argue that it's just another book that may or may not be factual. It's no different than going and grabbing a book from any library. Some argue that it's a fictional book that tells the story of a fictional people and a fictional God. Some believe the Bible is a cultural book that is outdated and not relevant to us today. That we've somehow evolved and outgrown the Bible. That we know so much more today and we're so much wiser than, than 2,000 years ago and so we've outgrown it. Some argue that it's a book without error or contradiction. That every single word should be taken literally while others argue the, the opposite. They say it's a book full of error and contradiction that should be taken with a grain of salt. And as Methodists, we kind of have our own approach to Scripture and our own understanding of Scripture. 
As Methodists, we historically believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and it's the primary authority for our faith. Right? It's not just another way that our faith is formed, kind of on level with reason and tradition and experience, but that we should interpret our experience through the lens of Scripture rather than interpreting Scripture through the lens of our experience. When we begin to take um, Scripture and interpret it through the lens of our experience, we can come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. We elevate experience over Scripture, and so we can believe anything. But I believe, historically, Methodists have not approached Scripture that way. We have approached Scripture um, and, and interpreted our experience and our reason and our tradition through the lens of Scripture. Our experiences should be informed and interpreted by Scripture, not the other way around. Because when we think about the Bible, the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. It's written for us, it's not written to us, right? It's the letters and the books found in the Bible were written to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. But being that it's the inspired living word of God, it's still relevant and transformational to us today. The Bible uniquely reveals who God is, who we are in relation to God, and God's continual ongoing desire to be in relation with us. And we've, there's multiple scriptures that we draw on in order to form these core beliefs and understanding of what scripture is and why it's so important. And I want to highlight three of those real quick. One comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It's alive and powerful. right? Yes, it was written by people, but it was authored by God. God inspired it. It's God-breathed. Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. We should read the Bible not just for information, not just for the what's and the who's and the when's, but for transformation, inspiration, and revelation. It is a primary way that God has and is revealing himself to us. So that any time we open up the word of God, we should expect and be looking for God to transform us and reveal who he is through his word. Not just to try to get the who's and what's right, to make sure that we know who this person is and where they went and what they did, but that we're looking for God in every page of the Bible, every word that's written. God is revealing himself to us. And if God really is who he says he is and will really do all that he's promised, then the Bible is something that we should take seriously. If it's a primary way that God is revealing himself to us, then we have to take it seriously. It's something that we should be studying intentionally and consistently. But more than just reading it and understanding it, there's an importance to actually obeying it, actually living it out, recognizing that it should have authority in our lives because it's inspired by God. James chapter 1, verse 22, this is what James says in connection with that. He says, but don't just listen to God's word. 
He's, he's calling us hypocrites. If you just listen to it, but you don't do it, you're a hypocrite. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. Only fooling yourselves. Obeying it is not easy, though, right? It's difficult. When I reflect on my own life and the times that I've been disobedient to God's word, it's because I've either been lazy or I didn't necessarily like what it said or I wanted to be in control and so I didn't want to surrender my own will to God and so I just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. But I think there's an even a bigger reason, an underlying reason, I think, one of the primary reasons that we struggle with obedience to God's word. And I think it lies in the fact that sometimes we struggle with understanding how the Old and New Testament go hand in hand. Right? We have an unhealthy understanding of the Old Testament, or which we refer to as the law, and the New Testament, or the New Covenant. Right? Because some would argue that, well, in the Old Testament, God was just an angry God that made a bunch of laws, and then he changed, and in the New Covenant, he's a God of love, and so we can just kind of toss out all of that old stuff. We can just kind of toss it out. And contrary to what many have taught and what many believe, the law was actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing that we look back on and say, well, we can just throw it all out because God was angry and he's not angry anymore. One of my favorite books, The Epic of Eden, a Christian entry into the Old Testament, the author Dr. Sandra Richter says, We tend to think of the law in terms of a cruel and evil taskmaster, the ultimate foil to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's contrary to what we read James say. right? If the Old Testament can be tossed out, if it's, if it's not any good, James wouldn't say don't just be a hearer of it, but actually do what it says. And it's also contradictory to what both Paul and Jesus say in the New Testament. Chapter 7, verse 12 of Romans, Paul says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. The law served to sketch the profile of God to a fallen people, and it directed their steps towards righteousness. It was pointing them towards righteousness. It was pointing them towards Jesus. The law taught the Israelites that Yahweh, unlike the other gods of the ancient Near East, abhorred human sacrifice, abhorred self-mutilation and temple prostitution. That Yahweh was immune to magic and competed with no one. And unlike the other surrounding gods, Yahweh was independent of his creation. Yahweh was different, and what he expected of his people was different too. And then Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to throw it out. I've not come to abolish it or get rid of it. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, do away with the Old Testament. He came to fine-tune it. He fine-tuned the law. Immediately following his words of not abolishing the law but fulfilling it, we see Jesus actually raise the bar. He actually makes it more difficult. Right In the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't say, you've heard it said not to murder. 
But I tell you, don't worry about it. Do whatever you want. I've got your back. It's not what it says. Jesus says, you've heard it said in the old law, in the Old Testament, you've heard it said not to murder, but I say, don't even be angry with one another. You've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say, don't even look upon someone else lustfully. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say, turn the other cheek. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. In the fine-tuning of the law, Jesus shifts the focus from just behavior modification to motive, emotion, and relationship. Jesus is saying that it's not enough just to follow the rules. It's not just about outward actions. Jesus is concerned with the condition of our hearts. Israel struggled with adherence to the law because their hearts weren't changing. Their motives were off, and so a new covenant was needed. A new relationship between God and humanity in which the people could be transformed. And Jesus' fine-tuning or fulfilling of the law, he does not do away with it because the law served a very critical role. Galatians 3.24 says, So the law was our guardian. Josh translation, The law was our babysitter. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The law which communicated the character of God prepared humanity to recognize the exact representation of his nature when he came to live among us. Right? It's the Old Testament that is full of who Jesus is that actually um, taught us what to look for in a Savior, who to look for. It all pointed to Jesus. And the problem with the Old Covenant or the law was not the law itself, it was the people. The solution of the New Covenant does not so much change the law as it changes us. In the New Covenant, through Jesus, we're transformed and empowered by the Holy Spirit so we can pursue Jesus, so that we can pursue righteousness, so that we can pursue a relationship rather than simply pursuing the rules and the laws. So what does all this mean? That's all well and good, but... Practically speaking, what does this look like day-to-day as a follower of Christ in 2022? If the law is good, what role does it play in our lives today? In the book that I referenced earlier, The Epic of Eden, Dr. Richter recognizes the complexity of this question while admitting there are not any completely satisfactory answers to it. But she offers a compelling viewpoint. This is something that for 2,000 years... We've been kind of discussing and trying to figure out what do we do with the law? What do we do with the Old Testament beyond just knowing the stories? What do we do with it? What role does it play in our life today? And Most everyone recognizes that simply tossing out the entire law contradicts the New Testament. Right? Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So we can't just say, all right, tear it out of the Bible, throw it over. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But most equally recognize that imposing the law in its entirety on the Christian also contradicts the New Testament. So there's a middle-of-the-road viewpoint, perspective, somewhere between throwing it all out and doing it all 100%. So the conclusion for most is there's this middle-of-the-road, and, and many like to try to create these two categories, and this is how they kind of decide what to throw out and what not to throw out. 
The first category is the moral ethical category. That if it's a law that falls under morals and ethics, then it's good and we should continue doing it. And then the second category is civil or ritual. And if it falls under that, then it's obsolete and we don't have to think about it and worry about it anymore. So an example, the Ten Commandments would be a moral or ethical rule or law that is still binding, that we should still follow. But the law requiring tassels on the four corners of a person's garment is ritual, and it's not something we have to worry about. But the problem is that Israel did not have this distinction. They didn't have the two categories. They saw it all as being inspired by God and God's divine will. So in the end, most assume that the Mosaic Law is generally obsolete with regards to Christians, but we're bound by those aspects of the law that are either reiterated by Jesus or those that generally just seem right. So many Christians approach the law, the Old Testament, as unless the New Testament or Jesus said something about it, I can just toss it out. But Dr. Richter actually argues the opposite of that. Instead of thinking in terms of the law being obsolete, except for what Jesus maintains, we should begin to think in terms of the law being enforced, except for what Jesus repeals. And there are specific things that the New Testament changes with regards to the law. And Dr. Richter identifies three categories of Mosaic law, which in their specific expectations no longer apply to the Christian. And the first one is laws involving the regulation of Israel's government. Right? It's clear from the New Testament that Jesus' only throne will be in heaven. And that the new citizenry of his kingdom will come from every tongue, tribe, and nation. There's no longer any single nation that can lay claim to being the people of God. Nor is there any single piece of real estate that is promised to them. So the very literal political realities of Israel's theocracy are done away with, leading us to assume that the complex list of laws and regulations that govern their theocracy are done away with as well. Second category that she says is obsolete is the laws involving the regulation of Israel's temple. Right? Jesus redefines what the temple is in the New Testament. First, he says it's his own body is the temple. And then later, as the individual believer in the church, as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. Jesus is identified as the final sacrifice and as the church's new high priest. So with the New Covenant, we learn that Israel's temple laws are obsolete. So it's safe to conclude that the complex processes dictated by Mosaic law, like the design and decor of the building, the cleanliness of the priest and worshiper, sacrifice and meditation or mediation are now obsolete as well. We can build a church building in a worship area however we want. There's not a law that says it has to be this wide and this tall and built with this type of wood and this type of gold and, and any of that. Right? There's no certain architectural model now because the Holy Spirit, God dwells in us, not in the temple. The believer's no longer required to bring a sacrifice. Right? How different would Sunday mornings be if we still had to bring our cattle and our doves and our sheep and whatever with us for sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was the spotless lamb who died for all of our sins. Sacrifice is no longer a requirement. The laws of clean and unclean are thrown out. The mediation of human priests is unnecessary. You have a direct line to God. 
You don't have to come to me or DA or anyone to say, will you speak to God for me? While it's important for us to be speaking to God for one another, for us to be praying for one another, we also all have direct lines. There's no longer the need for a human priest to mediate between man and woman and God. And then the third category is laws that the New Testament specifically repeals or changes. And this, we see some of this in the book of Acts. Right? We see that the necessity of circumcision. They said, no, it's not necessary to be a follower of Christ. Certain regulations on food. Restrictions regarding the Sabbath. Those things were changed in the New Covenant. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus encourages us to look beyond the letter of the law and to see the spirit of the law. And Jesus saying that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, Jesus is making sure that we understand he's not throwing out the promises and expectations and hopes of the prophets. He's not throwing out the holiness of God expressed in the law of Moses. Jesus is the very thing that those were about. It all pointed to Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those things. Right? He is what all of those things pointed to. He is the true temple of God. He is the true Lamb of God. Jesus is the very law of God in the flesh, the Word of God as John writes, and the very speech of God is written in Hebrews. Jesus fulfills all of these various elements of the law by perfectly incarnating them, perfectly obeying them, and then even as He bears our sin on the cross, He bears the penalty of the law, death and the wrath of God for sinners. He fulfills them as He, raised, as he is raised from the dead, never to die again. As followers of Jesus, it's incredibly important to be a people of the Word. We can't just decide and cut out parts of the Bible that we don't like. We can't just throw out the Old Testament. The entire Bible is the inspired Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. It's an incredible way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, to reveal his nature and his character and his love for us. It's in the revelation that we are transformed. Right? It's God's revelation that transforms us. God conforms our hearts to be like his in prayer, but he transforms our minds to be like his through his word. My prayer for this church as I reflect on our 29-year history and dream about our future is that we would continue being a people of the word that we would not give in to the temptation of taking the Word of God for granted, that we wouldn't give in to the temptation of thinking it isn't relevant to us today, the temptation of thinking it's not important to read and study, the temptation of chasing after what our itching ears want to hear. Because if we want to know the glory of God, and if we want to experience the beauty of God, and if we want to be used by God, we need to live in the Word of God. Let's pray.